1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in history at the University of Delaware. Today we have on the the podcast Dr. Maurice Hobson, Associate Professor of African American Studies and historian at Georgia State University. Dr. Hobson is here to discuss The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics in Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta, published by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press in 2017. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hobson. How are you today?
2: Man, I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me.
1: Very good. And so um, before we begin talking um, about your tremendous book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, can you give us a bit of a, uh, of a, of a background to how you came to this topic? Uh, well
2: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I, uh, I am a Southerner with generations. With, I'm a 10-generation Southerner. Uh, family came through the ports of Louisiana and uh, uh, through Virginia. Uh, by and large, my family resides in the American South. Uh, so with that being said, uh, when I was a kid, I, was, I grew up in Selma, Alabama. Uh, of course, you know, in the shadows of what we understand as the civil rights movement and Bloody Sunday. Uh, later on, I went to college in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I did a master's degree in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Did a PhD in Champaign-Urbana. But I'm referencing all of this because I was actually born in Jackson, Mississippi. So my whole, I'm born and bred of civil rights uh, soil. Uh, My whole family, the whole kind of conversation around that is in that. But um, growing up in Selma, Alabama, um, I could remember the first time that we celebrated the Dr. Martin Luther King holiday in 1986. And uh, I was sad to be black because they killed Dr. King and he was trying to do what was right. And so uh, I think in order to, to deal with that, uh, I really threw myself head first into African American history and actually went to college to be a medical doctor. Uh, but what happened is I feel like the universe and the ancestors called me and said, this is what you're supposed to do. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So it, that's where it is. And in terms of me getting to Atlanta and studying Atlanta, uh, I am the biggest outcast and Goodie mob fan in the history of the world. Um, Initially, when I I heard the music at the age of 17, when the first album dropped, Uh, Outkast is about a year and a half older than I am. Uh, I thought it was rebel music, Um, but what it really did is it created a framework for me to kind of discuss a conversation around civil rights or how we understand the long movement. But uh, in 1996, as a sophomore in college, I worked for the Olympics in Atlanta uh, to pay my initiation fee into Omega Sci-Fi. And... Ended up writing a master's thesis at the University of Alabama on the Dirty South. Well, moving forward, uh, when I went to the University of Illinois, I took a class called Black Politics, Art, and Culture with a with a professor by the name of Fanon Wilkins. And that outcast began to talk to me, and this conversation around private historically black colleges and Black Power began to talk to me, and then the Olympic Games began to talk to me. And what happened is I just married all of them together and created, uh, you know, this conversation on Atlanta, but also a new two new Schools of thoughts, uh, the Black New South, and uh, the Olympification of cities, and so, so that's where we are, brother. That's what it is.
1: And I was gonna say, you are making that claim about being the biggest uh, outcast of Goodie Ma fan in the world? That, that's that, that's about as big as a claim as any you made in your book, man. So hey, you know, I, I'm sure it's tried and true.
2: <laughs> well, well, uh, I'm gonna tell you this. Uh, you know, they've interacted with a lot of the work. the 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 proof is this, and this is the this is the actual proof. I saw Outkast and met Outkast for the first time on March fifth, nineteen ninety-five. I was a senior in high school, and they had come down for the thirty-year celebration of Bloody Sunday, and they were cool. I mean, they they were stars, but they weren't you know as big as they are now. And you know, just interacted with them, and then later on did some interviews with them for a master's thesis. But it's crazy how that research on southern hip hop has morphed into a political history on the Black New South that looks at the national and international implications of Atlanta as a black Mecca, but also conversations around foreign policy and Cold War politics, you know, internationally. So it's a, it's a, it's, that's the, the strength of this text is that it started when I was a 17 year old kid riding around Selma, Alabama, with my best friend's Cutlass. And now it's, 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 it's magnanimous. I mean, the, the research has morphed over a period of time. And, you know, Organized Noise and, and, and the crew, they like this work. They they really, you know, they're like, man, this is really good stuff. And you really kind of ask the right questions. So, you know, I'm grateful for it.
1: And we're, we are the better for it as well, because it is a beautiful thing when you can merge outcast, Organized Noise, Cold War politics, internationalism, like, you know, Olympic Games. Like, hey, that that's what you got and that's what we got. And so we, we gonna, we gonna, you know, look at how that all became a thing. And so, um, can you talk to us a bit about, you know, some of the, the major figures in in the text that, that, that you speak of, you spoke of some of them before that are later on, but. Well,
2: and, and, and there's several different kinds of major figures. Uh, I privilege the voices of those that have been further marginalized and, uh, with that being said, let me let me just clarify something. Uh, I named the book The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and Making a Modern Atlanta, because for every legend there is truth. And Atlanta's notoriety as a black mecca is historically ba- based on three things, uh, black education historically black colleges, um, black economics, particularly the Sweet Auburn District and the West Hunter Street District, which was the business thoroughfare. And that begets black political empowerment and electoral politics. And so that's the real strength of Atlanta as a black Mecca. However, over time, it's been embellished to mean all kinds of different things for all kinds of different people. And so with this being said, uh, I mean, some of the people that are highlighted that are already in the mainstream would be politicians such as you know, uh, Maynard Jackson, Mayor Maynard Jackson, the first black mayor of Atlanta, and ambassador and second black mayor, Andrew Young. Um, but there are also conversations around the, the the missing and murdered children, the victims of the Atlanta child murders. Uh Outcast and Goody Mob are highlighted. Uh organized noise. You know, Rico Wade, Ray Murray, and Sleepy Brown are highlighted. Um some of the conversations around people like Wesley Merritt, who is the number one number runner in all of Georgia. Um Camille uh, uh I'm 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 just blanking right now. Uh Camille Bell, uh mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. of the missing and murdered mothers, you know. Um, Willie Mae Mathis. So it's it's one of those things where it references what we know of as the Civil Rights Vanguard. I mean, it even references Kings, King's legacy, Ivan Allen. It references you know uh, Lester Maddox and the segregationists and how the, manip- the the manipulation between you know all of that kind of works. It looks at you know Bunny Jackson Ransom, who was the former First Lady of Atlanta and her creation of the music industry. So it there are layers to, you know, all of those that are highlighted, but it some of them are known in the mainstream across this nation and world, and others are not, but they're known here in Atlanta. And I, I think that's the beauty of the text, is that of the, the the range of highlighted characters.
1: And I and I really enjoy that too, because then you get to better understand you know, what makes Atlanta Atlanta and to try to also sift through, you know, that bit that you talk, just talked about how, um, you know, there is something to this legend, but there's much more to, you know, the the beautiful history uh, of, uh, of this particular place that, you know, I'm not going to lie. I couldn't stand Atlanta growing up. I'm going to be honest in part because I remember when I was a kid, and, you know, this is showing my particular age being so young. But I remember going through Atlanta for the first time in the mid-2000s during Soulja Boy's rise. And remember, I, I, didn't hear no, I heard particular music that back up in Central Florida, I would not here on the radio for another six months. And I was like, man, look, all these people talking about Atlanta, everybody, man. And then my brother went to FAMU, I went to FAMU, and everybody named Mama after graduation it was like, Man, everybody trying to move to Atlanta. But then I actually spent a real, real time in Atlanta and I realized, yeah, I I I I I really see why people like this place.
2: <laughs> it's a it's <laughs> a great town. It's a it is a great town. I mean, like, it's a great town. Uh, it is a unique place for black folk. And and let me be clear on that. Like, I mean, like, I love living in this city and I love the work that I do in this city. Uh, there are folks who automatically assume that if you're critical of something that you don't like it, but I mean, you know, uh, my mother and father raised six children, and I love them with everything that they have, and they love me with everything that I have. But I can often say, well, you know, Ma, I didn't like when you did that, or Dad, I didn't like when you did that. So, like, people got to get over themselves to kind of understand that, you know, there's a there's a bigger story here that that must be dealt with, you know.
1: Mm Hmm. And and so, um, into the text, can you speak a bit to how in the pre I guess, you know, pre-formal civil rights movement, what was going on in Atlanta behind, you know, this particular scene in in this uh, pre-civil rights movement Atlanta that really helped to, you know, really put the groundwork down for for this particularity uh, of Atlanta that that you speak about?
2: So... So let me let me go ahead and address I got to address this big elephant in the room and because currently there are debates amongst those that study civil rights, black power, black freedom struggles, depending on what you want to call it. And so the, the argument is that particularly amongst those that whitewash what we understand as the modern civil rights movement is that it took place from 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, to 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 or 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King. Um, those of us who identify with the long movement, we argue that Black folk have been arguing for civil and human rights, been fighting for civil and human rights since the first Africans touched shores, and we're still fighting right now. Um, there are several conversations. Uh, Sundiata Charles and Clarence Lane kind of lay this out in terms of the vampire thesis, that when you try to lump civil rights and Black power together in this Black freedom struggle, that it, it it's like a vampire and it sucks the blood, it sucks the life out of different things. And so, the and and I studied under. Clarence Lang and Sundiata Chajua uh, at Illinois with my PhD. But this is the thing. I want to just go ahead and lay the rest that civil rights activity took place before Brown v. Board of Education, and we're still fighting now. So with that being said, what happens is when in in 1862, when General William Tecumseh Sherman was commissioned by President Abraham Lincoln to tear up the South and to to march across the sea, march to the sea, he, he, he goes across the American South. He pillages the land. I mean, he tears up railroad tracks. He does all this stuff to break the South's back. And when he gets to Atlanta, he sets Atlanta on fire. Atlanta is not the city that it is today, by no means. But what's clear about it is as he is situated, as he situates himself in Atlanta, federal troops remain in Atlanta for a particular period of time. And also you have the headquarters for the Freedmen's Bureau that, that situate themselves here. So black folk who are, who have been newly freed could come to Atlanta and get equal protection and due process under the law, the 14th Amendment, before the actual 14th Amendment was, was added to the Constitution. Okay? So the thing about it is you have a groundswell of newly freed Black folk that are moving to the city. And at the same time, you also have the founding of historically Black colleges or Black schools for Black folk brought together by Northern white missionaries. And so What happens in this whole piece is that Atlanta becomes this unique place where black people are able to receive some semblance of equal protection under the law until about 1875. And then we see the groundswell of Jim Crow uh, that takes place and we see all kinds of different things. But what happens in this is because of the historically black colleges and because of the black entrepreneur class, the, the merchant class. What we begin to understand is that Atlanta becomes a right place for a particular kind of black person, someone who is interested in social mobility. And later on, that is able to parlay into these kingmakers or these leaders within the black community. Um, And so what's going on during this time is you got black folks that are coming together. Uh, They uh, put forth a referendum, a bond referendum to create uh, a public school, which later becomes Booker T. Washington High School, which which is the first Public school in the city. You got the Storer School that is started by um, uh, missionaries at what is now First Congregation Church, which is a historically Black church. You have all of these different things going on, and so there is a an elite and middle class that resides here. And one of the things that's able to take place is that in the nineteen you know thirties and forties, particularly in terms of politics, is in nineteen forty four. You have a court case, King v. Chapman, um, where a guy named Promise King challenges the all-white Georgia primary in the state of Georgia. And the U.S. Supreme Court um, basically declares that um, the all-white Georgia primary is unconstitutional. And what this does is this opens up a new constituency of black voters. So for statewide and in the city of Atlanta, if you wanted to get elected as a white politician, if you really wanted to get elected, you had to go to the black community. And so what happens is, is uh, two, two uh, particular gentlemen, uh, John Wesley Dobbs, who was deemed as the highest ranking Mason in all of Georgia, black Mason in all of Georgia. Uh, he was the unofficial mayor of the Sweet Auburn district. And he, he is the grandfather of Maynard Jackson. Along with his friend, A.T. Walden, Austin T. Walden, who was uh, one of the first black men to be an assistant attorney for Fulton County and one of the champions of the Gate City Bar, the, the Black Lawyers Association. What happens in that is these two gentlemen create the Atlanta Negro Voters League and the Atlanta Negro Voters League is able to broker deals on behalf, negotiate deals on behalf of the black community for black folk. Now, the thing about this is the Atlanta Negro Voters League consisted of 35 of the most prominent black businessmen in the community. And the, the issue is, is, first and foremost, it's men. But second is, like who's determining who the prominent businessmen are? And so even though the Atlanta Negro Voters League is doing justice by trying to negotiate on behalf of the black community, it also shows that there are splinters within the black communities, whereas the working class. The black working classes and poor felt as if their ideas were not being articulated and the elite and middle class were basically able to get, you know, the lion's share of all of the resources that were being brokered in that at that point in time. So that's where we are, man. I mean, that's that's what situates in Atlanta to kind of come about to where you have this large black you you have voting prowess, you have real black political empowerment and electoral politics. That is able to to kind of push a black agenda in a particular kind of way
1: and and that black agenda uh one of the parts that I saw uh and and saw a lot through your through your work is, is really you know this you know black capitalism um it is a major um uh what I would see as a major fi- uh, a figure um in your text and how um you know, with the political uh, um, power and the and the social, and the relative social mobility um, in comparison to other places in the in in the in the South and the urban South, you know, black capitalism seemed to be a major major um, a function um, and I, I guess maybe product of that um, as well. Especially when you look at um, the the amount of economic success that many African-Americans, uh, well, maybe not many, you know, maybe not quantify many in that way, but, um, there, there were quite a few of, uh, you know, African-Americans who were, um, f- you know, ma- making, you know, making good do, uh, uh, financially. Well,
2: well, well, but I, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because, you know, what, what, what I just described was really pre Maynard Jackson. So this is, this is, These are the conditions that that's able to make Amanda Jackson. But I want to I want to kind of situate this in a particular kind of way. Okay, I mean, Birmingham is booming, but you got to understand that like Birmingham is a blue collar town based on steel. So you got to look at political economies across the American South. Durham, North Carolina is actually extremely comparable to Atlanta in a lot of ways in terms of the business component. I mean, you got Atlanta Life, you got black banks, you got funeral homes, you have a newspaper. Uh, New Orleans has this particular kind of political economy. Jackson, Mississippi has its own kind of economy. Memphis has its own kind of economy. Nashville has its own kind of economy. So you got to, we have to situate it in this regard. But this is, this is what I want to kind of put out there. I earlier stated that there is this kind of debate amongst historians about, you know, black freedom struggle or the long civil rights movement and, um, and, and the vampire thesis. What cannot be debated, though, is that the reason, the ways in which Atlanta begins to exist in the late 1960s has everything to do with Alabama. And let me explain this to you in this regard. See, in in 1962, uh, you have the Albany movement that is deemed as a failure because the sheriff, Laurie Pritchett, knew he he had read everything that dr king had written and knew that dr king was going to come to albany with nonviolent direct action and thus he did not like maim or kill or beat uh any of the civil rights workers um in in albany so what king and his crew what they do is they look for a place and birmingham becomes that place and you know we know the story of uh bull connor um And, you know, the movement in Birmingham and, you know, the dogs and the fire hoses on children. And we also know the subsequent bombing of uh, 16th Street Baptist Church. So what what they were able to do is they were able to find a racist that was so racist that he would act out in front of a camera and they showed this to the rest of the world. And this creates a problem for the United, the the image of the United States internationally. So the Soviets and the Chinese alike, we knew that they were not what they said that they were. Also, you got some tarrying that's going on in St. Augustine, Florida, um, uh, an issue going on in St. Augustine, Florida. And what this does is this forces Lyndon B. Johnson to write into executive order the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which buttresses the 14th Amendment and grants equal protection and due process under the law. So that's the major legislation that comes out of Birmingham. Then. 1965. Yeah, the issue of my hometown of Selma, Alabama, where, you know, black folks are trying to vote. The police end up killing uh, Jimmy Lee Jackson. And as a result, you have a march that ensues uh, to kind of articulate the ideas of black folks who want to vote, which, which is supposed to be granted to, to black folk with the 15th Amendment. And what happens is as they march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the police main kill Fight, they 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 kill white people, they kill all kinds of people involved. I mean, I like guess a very bloody kind of thing. It's down on this bloody Sunday. And what this does is this forces into executive action from President Lyndon B. Johnson the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which buttresses the 15th Amendment and grants universal suffrage. So, what you have is citizenship coming out of Birmingham and voting coming out of Selma. And when you marry them together, you got black folk that are interested in voting in their own interest. This is called the Black New South. And so and, and, and so what happens with this is during this time, William Hartsfield, Mayor William Hartsfield of Atlanta, decides that he's going to coin this term or they're going to present this image of Atlanta as the city too busy to hate to present it as being different than a Birmingham, a Selma, a Jackson, a Little Rock. And so what I'm saying to you is that part of Atlanta's notoriety as a city too busy to hate or the Black Mecca or notoriety, or, or notoriety as, you know, Atlanta, has everything to do with presenting itself as not being like the rest of the American South. And it, uh, this, is, this is what Maynard Jackson is able to tap into uh, to, get, to get elected. And the reason I'm saying this is if you've been able to read the text, one of the things that you know is that Maynard Jackson was hated by the black kingmakers in the city until he proved to them that he was the most viable candidate and they got in line. So Maynard was not, I mean, he was not like, you know, this crown prince. He was not like, you know, this knight in shining armor. He, he came from the belly of the beast and he basically usurped, you know, all that, all of the politicians, the black politicians who felt like they were standing in line to be, to, to hold the top office in the city. And it's because Maynard understood this Black New South and the changing demographics where reverse migration from the Midwest, Northeast, and West Coast cities, moving back to cities in the American South because of that civil rights legislation. Maynard Jackson is able to galvanize a groundswell of votes in Atlanta, those that grew up with him, also the working class and poor. He championed himself as a, as a champion of the people, uh, You know, particularly in terms of housing. And then what he's able to do is he's able to articulate or understand that there's a new demographic moving to the city, black demographic, and then there's a progressive, uh, a group of progressive whites. And that's what allows for Maynard to get an office. And when Maynard gets in office, what he does is he opens the city contracts up to black contractors. And that's what creates the black millionaires. That's the black capitalism. So, that's a result of Maynard Jackson. That's not about Atlanta, per se. That's that's, a, that's that's after 1973. Maynard Jackson, I think when Maynard took office, I think 0.3% of city contracts um, went to black contractors. By the time he was in office, 25% went to city contractors. And now the city's up to 35% of city contracts go to minority contractors. So that's, that's the beauty of, of Maynard Jackson. It's his his, his idea of civil rights was economic inclusion with public funds
1: mm. and, and and that's a, and, and i appreciate that for uh appreciate you for the that uh contextualization uh, of my previous comment on um on uh black capitalism um because i think it's important because um because it, it, to a certain degree it also sounds like you know uh Manor jackson um uh, and i'll be interested to ask you later about uh, what the present legacy as someone who's, you know, very much involved, obviously, in, in many different projects and, and as someone writing about not only a book on Atlanta, but actually living there as well. I'll be interested to ask you about what the what the legacy of Maynard Jackson is um, it, it, uh, later on. Um, it, but but before I uh, we get to that portion, um, one of the one of the parts that was interesting about what you just brought up was about um you know the the city contracts and and the 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 the, the opportunities for minority uh contractors and, and also thinking about you know it, it seems that Mayor jackson was someone who um you know you what was what was his relationship with with the um with really the the you know, economically uh, low-income uh, community in, in the city of Atlanta?
2: Uh, Maynard Jackson, to be quite honest with you, Maynard Jackson was a sacred cow. Um, black folk loved him. I mean, the the only places where Maynard Jackson has some issues, and we'll get into that a little bit later, is uh, his, his handling of the sanitation workers in 1977, and then what is perceived as the mishandling of the missing and murdered children, the Atlanta child murders. But, like, Maynard Jackson, by and large, I mean, for for that generation, particularly that generation that um, that is coming of age in the 60s and 70s. I mean, he was beloved by black folk top to bottom and he was he was seen as a champion of black folk to 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 white America. But he was he let me be clear. He was a statesman. I mean, like he had friends in all walks of life. He had traveled the world. He had done all these different things. So the black community actually. Adored him. The vitriol, the critique of him comes when he runs for the third term in the 1990s. So, his first term terms as mayor from 73 to 81. I mean, black people really got behind him, and so did uh, progressive whites. And and so, no, he had he had a a wonderful relationship. He was amongst the people. He would ride around the city of Atlanta uh, in his car with his kids to just go meet people. He would see people. He'd get out and talk to them on the porch. Um, Maine. was. I need to say this about him. Uh, he was sired into a very influential family, but they were not rich. And so, his his family's um, lore and relationship with the community was one that was, you know, on the ground. I mean, his grandfather was a mason and, you know, did a lot of work with, you know, masonic uh, a lot of masonic work. Uh, his own father was a minister, was the pastor of Friendship Baptist Church. So, I mean, his orientation. To the world was on the ground with people and so he was beloved
1: and, and that and that's good because you know i'm always interested in especially because you know i'm i'm someone who writes about um you know the 18th century and and 19th century uh, uh america and so you know obviously none of my i hope not none of my historical figures are are, are alive and, and, and kicking so i'm always interested to ask like kind of these legacy questions to folks like yourself um, who, who who study uh, um, modern um, black American, black America, rather, um, because, you know, really like what I like really most about your book was that when I now go to Atlanta, I can look, you know, r- really to me, your book provides me a better understanding of when I'm in Atlanta, when I'm at Auburn Avenue, a research library, um, and I'm, and I'm at these different places, I can refer back to areas of your text to then be able to understand not only the physical location, but also the development at which, you know, we got here today, um, for, for Atlanta to have its, you know, particular standing, um, in, in, in America and specifically in black America.
2: Yeah. Well, so, so let me say this, you know, um, the elders, the elders all, where I'm from would often say, if you tell the truth, you don't have to tell a lie. And what I mean by that is, I would have loved to have sat down and interviewed Mane Jackson. I met Manny Jackson one time, I was five years old, and he walked into a restaurant and he shook everybody's hand and kissed babies and my parents. You would have thought that it was the second coming of Christ, man. But the thing about it is that, like, I... I don't ha- I didn't have an opportunity to interview Maynard, but I had an opportunity to interview his family. I had an opportunity to interview, you know, Ambassador Andrew Young. And I was able to understand so much more about what uh, Andrew Young had to do as mayor because he gave me context that you can't get in the records. And so with this being said, like We're going to talk about Maynard Jackson's legacy a little bit later, um, because I, I think I think he's a he's a unique political figure. Um, but in terms of that kind of context, I mean, like Atlanta, Black Atlanta just just didn't grow up. You know, it's, it, it just didn't come about, you know, as a result of Dr. King. Like it existed long before King was ever thought of, you know. And so that's the that's the thing that we're we're trying to articulate here is that there are that these folks come from these particular communities and and bear the scars and victories of that they movies. do,
1: that they do. And and speaking of scars, um, you know, it's interesting. So the only time that I had heard about the, um, the Atlanta, um, child murders is actually off of a reference, um, from, uh, from, uh, James Baldwin. Um, and so, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, we have many listeners, various understandings here. Um, can you can you uh, situate, you know, what the Atlanta child murders were, and also specifically what, you know, what was going on um, as far as you know the coverage of uh, of this particular uh, scene, and, and 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 based upon what you said before, please definitely um, talk about uh, some of the some of the activism with the families as well uh, dealing with this unfortunate situation.
2: Okay, so the Atlanta child murders were a series of murders that took place in the 70s and 80s where uh, poor black children were being hunted. Uh, How I often articulate it is that the most vibrant yet vulnerable citizens of Atlanta were being hunted. and They were overwhelmingly poor black boys. Now. There's an interesting context of how this plays out in the public and then what's actually going on on the ground. The public knows that of the murders, most of what the public knows of the murders. And it's a sad thing that young people today don't know of these murders because in my generation, I mean, that's what put the fear of God in us. That's why we, we weren't, you know, out here roaming the streets because there was a killer killing black children. Um, but the, it is often articulated that the, the child murders took place from 1979 to 1981 and that there were 29 to 30 victims. Um, supposedly killed by a man by the name of Wayne Williams. However, uh, further research shows that the murders took place from 1975 to 1985, and there were way more than 20, 29 to 30 victims uh, outside of the purview of the convicted killer, Wayne Williams. Um, the thing about it is, because Atlanta was already trying to present itself as the poster child of the American South, There are those in the community that felt that it took Maynard Jackson too long to admit that there was a serial killer on the loose. And because by and large, the victims that we know were poor, uh, poor black children, it was perceived that, and I'm not saying that I believe this, but I'm just telling you how people see things. It was perceived that Maynard Jackson had gotten more interested in promoting the black mecca image than protecting black people. And so um, I was a five, six-year-old when all this was going on. And I have older brothers uh, who would have been like 13, 12, 13, and 9 and 10, something like that. And so uh, I, I played college sports. I've always been really good at sports and, you know, like leisure stuff. But part of that was because when I was a kid, you couldn't just go outside and play. You went to the y m c a to play basketball or you had to play organized sports because even in Alabama, they weren't letting you run roam the streets free. Uh, I was supposed to grow up here in Atlanta, and they were killing black kids, and so I grew up in Alabama as a result of that um and so with this being said, uh we didn't celebrate Halloween, and I can remember every night when the news would come on it would say it is it is five o'clock or it is six o'clock. do you know where your children are It was a just a very eerie time, and so um most recently, there was a podcast done on the Atlanta child murders that that I, it, it lacked a lot of context and substance. Uh, we're working on something that will kind of rectify that situation. Um, but with with this being said, the child murders were seen as a very dark episode where black children were being murdered. Uh, they were being, you know, uh, they would being left out in fields uh, to rot. And it had the city in fear and on on, on grip. Um, and then when they convicted Wayne Williams as the killer, most of the black community felt as if that was the wrong man that was convicted. And one of the things I've done in my book is I look at why the black community, uh, felt that way. And I think it's a, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty sound argument on, based on the evidence that we were able to see. And most recently I've come in contact with a lot more evidence.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Yeah, and so and, and like I said, there that um, the James uh, Baldwin notation was, was my initial um, uh, foray, um, I guess, peripherally um, on on the topic. But I really do think that what you do, you you provide a lot of um, great uh, context and also information about um, you know how this not only uh, affected obviously the. The victims and, and their families, um, as well, but also how you know, like you said, like that, you know, I'm sure in the city of Atlanta, and, and for those, um, and now makes me want to ask my mother, did she ever hear about this in, in, in New York? But, uh, um, I'm if your mother is. If he said, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, she was. She would have been, um, during that time, yeah. uh, finishing up high school and going into college, um, yeah. in, in Brooklyn, New York. And so, um, I, I think about this in, 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 in part because when I think about these particular instances where people remember where they were, they remember, you know, particular time frames, and also it's a like a, it's like a, it's like a cultural marker as well. Um, I, I thought that that as someone who grew up in um, uh, uh, the, I guess the, I don't know if you want to call this the Trayvon Martin, like in the post Trayvon Martin uh, America, because that that was when I was, I was 20 um, when when that happened. And I grew up about uh, 30, about 30 miles away from Sanford. I think about, you know, what I was doing. I think about, you know, I'm at FAMU, and all this stuff is happening. I have friends in the in the Dream Defenders, and all this. And I, I bring this up to say, I'm, I, I see, um, I see a, a, a parallel. Um, yeah, there's a
2: parallel. This is this is Trayvon Martin is your generation's Atlanta child murders. and, and but the, and 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 this is not to discount Trayvon Martin or you know. Um, uh, the the young man rice uh, the uh, you know the Michael Brown, this is never to discredit them. I mean, all of it is atrocious. The interesting thing about the Atlanta child murders though is that these children were being killed, and for two years they had no there was no killer like to come forward no no one was convicted, and the streets knew more than the police did, which signaled to the community that there was a cover up like who's killing these kids and so that's the interesting thing about it. And so I, I, I certainly get what you're saying is, I mean, you know, George Zimmerman murders Trayvon Martin and he's laying out there. Well, what was going on here is that like little kids, I'm, I'm talking about kids like four years old, kids 11 years old. They all you know, had Afros like they're laying out in fields and people are just stumbling up on their bodies. And like the community is just scared as I don't know what about this whole thing. And it's a. Um, it's just a very interesting kind of context. But I, I'll say this. Um, for people of my generation, and I'm in my early leading more towards mid 40s, I mean, this we still haven't healed from this. And one of the things that I try to do is I try to pay homage to the victims that are known to the public. And if you in the back of the book in the appendix, I kind of lay out their situation. I lay out, you know uh, the conditions that they were living in when they were snatched. I do all of that work. I spent a lot of time with eight of the mothers of the missing and murdered children. I interviewed them, um, was able to talk with Wayne Williams and his attorneys. It's a, it's oh yeah, it's a very, very interesting thing.
1: That it is, man, that it is. And, and I, I definitely appreciated your uh, treatment in chapter three, um, of, uh, the committee to stop Ch- uh, children's murder. Um I in the in the Techwood uh Bat Patrol. Um because, because I really thought that you provided a great um uh history um of their activism and how they did not allow this to happen without them working and organizing um on on behalf of um on behalf of the children um and and the families and the victims too. Um, because what it does, it, it, it adds more of an understanding to, to an outsider like myself and to many of the listeners of the podcast to understand, like, it, you know, there was not a top, you know, the activism wasn't coming from the top for this. It was coming from, quote unquote, you know, uh, history from below, shall we say. Um, and, and I definitely appreciated that treatment as well and, um, and, and your inclusion of them in, in, the, in the story. Thank you, brother. Yes, sir. And also, you know, I I thought that, you know, so I've known about, you know, Andrew Young being the mayor of of Atlanta for a while. That wasn't new information. But I really appreciated the um, the 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 two chapters where you focus on Andrew Young um, and and his political career, because I feel like, you know, a lot of times as someone who grew up, you know, in a in a very deep south family in, in, in North and South Carolina, where King is, you know, it's it's Jesus, it's you know King and and, and, Doc, uh, and Malcolm, but someone like Andrew Young, I th- I think, I now know so much more about his um his his life and his you know his legacy and what he brought to the city. Um, so can you talk a bit about his political career, um, and and, and specifically about how he the internationalist, uh, 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 section as well in the internationalist phase uh uh leading up to um the the olympics that you that you that you worked at
2: yeah so so uh andrew young i mean i i, I will say this you know to spend time with him um he's, a, he's yeah, what a, was that a, like uh, he's a he's an excellent storyteller uh he's and he's he's extremely engaged um this ambassador is probably eighty-six years old. He turned eighty-six in March. He's in, he's extremely engaged. I saw him a couple of weeks ago, and we, you know he, he's a he's a really cool person to be around. Um, and he has a he has a public persona and a personal persona, and it's good to know both because it helps you to understand where he is.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the thing about him is that you must do your homework before you come before you go before him because. He's going to see what you know, and if you don't know, then he's like, "Well, you know, why am I wasting my time?" So I didn't give. He he didn't do that with me. I mean, we talked mm-hmm. about a lot of different things, but um, Ambassador Young, of course, cut his teeth as he 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 worked with Dr. King uh, at L- SCLC a little bit. You know, later, like he was. King had different waves of when he. Uh, when he when he had particular kind of lieutenants, I mean, so he has different kinds of people working with him. I mean, Jose Williams is a particular kind of person, and oftentimes Jose Williams and Andrew Young would work in tandem. Jose would be the rowdy one, and Andrew Young would be the one who would negotiate. So, um, but with this being said, um, it's he he was called to the ministry, and I kind of lay out you know what he told me about how he's calling to the ministry. Uh, he had grown up in New Orleans. Uh, his father was a dentist. Uh, he'd gone to Howard. And, and basically, he was just kind of like, you know, I let Howard, he didn't really know what his life's mission was. But he said he went on a run one night in King Mountain, North Carolina, and had run so fast and hard that he was out of breath. And when he looked up, he could see he was on top of the mountain. and He could see, you know, as far as the eye could see. And he said that God imbued in him that. If, if God has a plan for those mountains, that God had a plan for him. And so the thing about Andrew Young that we must first and foremost understand is, like, he has this religious experience, this conversion, and he's a preacher. it uh, was a lawyer who struggled with being a preacher, and Andrew Young is a preacher. And so the thing about it is uh, he becomes a pastor of a church. He goes down to South Georgia. He then comes back to Atlanta, and he's working with King. Um eventually King is assassinated and Young decides that he is going, he, he runs for the Senate, uh, not for the Senate, for Congress, uh, fifth district of Congress, uh, fifth district of Georgia. And what happens with that is uh, he loses the first time, gets a really good group of um, political intelligence around him, Clarence Baycoat and several other folks. And what happens is he's able to win and working in Congress, one of the gifts that he has is to be able to negotiate across the aisle. Now, to some people, they may have seen that as him being, you know, a little too friendly with the other side, but he's able to make it work for him. And he's tapped as UN ambassador, uh, ambassador to the United Nations under Jimmy Carter, who was from Georgia, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, he's there. He's able to kind of really smooth some things over with uh, the Soviets and with China. The, The thing about it is when... Jimmy Carter becomes president. The United States had a tattered image in terms of democracy. And so um, Jimmy Carter's foreign policy was called respectability politics. It was, you know, let's go in and respect people and do some different things. And so um, the thing about it is. Andrew Young, working with King. Was able to kind of go and articulate, you know, conversations around, you know, developing relationships and capital. In areas such as the Caribbean, Africa, um, Asia, and uh, you know what we know of as third world countries. And mm-hmm. gets into a little bit of hot water when he interacts with the Palestinian Liberation Organization and is forced to, to step down. Well, he comes back to Atlanta. And after Maynard Jackson, his time is up. Like, basically, Maynard Jackson and the Kingmakers in Atlanta tell Andy, you're going to be the next mayor of Atlanta. And, of course, he wins. Uh, You know, it it, it takes some some work, but he wins. And the thing about it is. Ronald Reagan is also president. And Ronald Reagan has taken all of the money out of cities. Uh, Of course, you know, it's it's this whole, uh, you know, kind of tightening the belt and free markets and, you know, less government programs. And so one of the things that Andrew Young will tell you is that he never had to ask the president for money because he had enough money coming into the city. But what he's able to do with that is he's able to tap into all of the the businessmen that he interacted with around the world while he was UN ambassador. And so, as Ronald Reagan takes a, takes about seventy five to eighty percent of all of the federal funds out of the city of Atlanta, Andrew Young is able to keep the city solvent by bringing in international investments. And as a result of that, you know, people on the ground may have seen it in one particular uh, seen it as if it was selling the city off. But the truth of the matter is he was trying to keep the city above above water. And that's the role of a mayor. The The role of a mayor is to keep a city solvent, to keep, you know, financially safe, issues of safety and whatever, whatnot. So that's what leads him into the mayorship. And it's during this time where you have a lot of social problems going on. I mean, you got, you know, post-industrial conditioning and uh, the, the creation of the age of information, you have crack cocaine, you have HIV AIDS, um, you you got, you know, uh, an economic recession, and he's having to deal in all of this. And so on one level, everyone wants him to be this black mayor, but then on another level, he has to be the mayor and operate in a claret red state amongst American capitalists. So uh, it's a very interesting kind of story in terms of what Andrew Young has to do and how that is remembered uh, in history,
1: and, and as well, uh, you know that that last part where you talk about, you know, on one end wanting to be the black mayor, and then the other end having to deal with the realities of the job in a time of national austerity. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, and I'll make I'll put this disclaimer out there: I'm not making a one to one, you know, parallel here. But to a certain degree, it almost <clears throat> excuse me, it reminds me of, um, you know, certain parts of the Obama administration where, you know, I know some folks were calling for President Obama to enact reform specifically targeted to African-American populations, whereas, you know, the others who would say, well, he is, he does have to, you know, govern the American empire, as, as some folks uh, uh, market it as. Um, and so to almost a certain degree... You can read this early situation with with um, uh, Mayor Young as like a almost like a way of a blueprint to to, to kind of better understand. Um, and obviously, we all come on on different sides of this uh, politically, but at least as like a a a way to maybe peer into and better situate and understand what occurred in the Obama administration from uh, from the last uh, from you know.
2: I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But uh, let, let me let me put it to you like this. Um, Obama. Obama had a different I mean, like Andrew Young as mayor had to deal with. Particular governors who were trying to control all aspects of things, I mean, like one of the things I lay out in the book is when Maynard was in office, how the the state government tried to shut down the city of Atlanta and make it like and try to get the state legislator to control it. So, like, there's this struggle for power. There's a struggle for power. But what, what we must understand with politicians, and see, this is where activists kind of miss out. There's a difference between activism and governance. We don't want to admit that. And so, you know, when you're an activist, you rah, rah, sis, boom, ba. When you are sitting in the seat and you know a whole lot more about what things are than what you actually know as an activist, it's a different kind of role that you play. In, in short, um, Obama had a smoother way of articulating things that Mayor Young may have not have been interested in being that smooth about it. Like he was just very matter of fact. That's one aspect of it. But then on another, the other side of it is this idea of generating capital. See that that's a that's a component. That we don't want to admit. And Andrew Young and Maynard Jackson and Barack Obama and all of these people, you got to understand they are negotiators. They are not kings. They, some people are sent in to negotiate on behalf of communities. And when you negotiate, you have to give some and you have to get some. Now, uh, there are areas of the mayorship that I'm critical, but I am the first to admit that I'm never interested in being a politician. So I don't have to. Play the games nor do i have to uh i don't i don't have to um situate myself in terms of constituencies and that's a privilege that i have as a non-politician so on one level I'm, what i'm saying is that like i can be critical but my lens is based on me never wanting to be a politician whereas if i was a politician i would be wondering why people are critical of me. You, you understand what i'm saying so so that's the thing about it is they're negotiating and i mean you know with the crack cocaine piece and with the, with the bigger guns and, you know, the creation of the Red Dog Police. You know, that's a, it's problematic. But also you have Ronald Reagan's war on drugs that took a trillion dollars from public education uh, to basically put black and brown men and women in prison and created the school-to-prison pipeline. So you, you, you got to understand, like, th- there are a lot of sides to what folks are doing. And the Olympics, particularly Atlanta and the Olympics, uh was an opportunity for Atlanta to refashion itself and to basically uh appropriate Dr. King's dream for worldwide consumption. But what it eventually does is it disfranchises, criminalizes, and displaces uh those that King fought hardest for, who were black poor people. So yeah, that's that's kind of where we are, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and and with with that backdrop, you have the creation of you know dirty stuff, uh, rap music, right? And 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 you have you know you know it, it's it's so wild, you know, on the side that whenever people um, bring up their um their 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 top ten uh, uh, best best MCs or best uh, rappers of, uh, of like the last thirty years, obviously, it's, you know, it's only thirty years so but um and 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 people don't you know bring in uh andre right and so you know (laughs) you know that's a that's a side note but you know when i think about all this happening, i think about the fact that i was born in 1992 and i've all and i don't know a world a hip-hop world where atlanta is not you know at the forefront um and so you know with that being said could you talk about you know the the you know, with the backdrop of this particular issue with the Olympics and and with the Young administration, um, you know, creating this particular image about Atlanta, c- could you speak to the, the the also the creation of of this transformative uh, genre of, of, of hip hop?
2: Well, yeah, and, it, and it's not just Young. It's not just Young's administration that is that is transforming Atlanta. But I will say this about Andrew Young is. He did bring the world. He did bring Atlanta to the world. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, like, you know, on, on some level, you know, things have to grow. Um, but you got Atlantans, not aliens. You got Atlanta. When, when, when you live in Atlanta, people will say, I'm not from ATL. I'm from Atlanta. That 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 signifies like I'm from the big country town of Atlanta. I'm not. We not city slick and we not this We We on the east, on the west and southwest side, people coming in from Alabama and other places uh, who, and people who are already here. And on the east side, it's coming from the Carolinas and Florida. Like it's said, it's one of those kind of things. Um, but this is the thing. When Atlanta bids for the Olympic Games, it's actually Maynard Jackson who's then mayor again. But Maynard Jackson is not the same kind of vigorous mayor that he was when he was in the 1970s. And so as a result of this, when the Atlanta delegation goes to Tokyo to do the bid, in Maynard Jackson's own words, what they do is they basically conjure up King's spirit by doing a sermon that was similar to what King would do. And what you had is Governor Joe Frank Harris, who was the, the governor at the time. He does he he talks and then Billy Payne um, The the guy who brings the idea of the Olympics to, well, brings the idea of the Olympics to Andrew Young. Maynard Jackson had been approached in 1975 about the Olympics, but it just didn't go anywhere. Um, Then you had Maynard Jackson to speak, and Maynard Jackson kind of starts the the sermon. He starts to kind of whoop. And then Andrew Young, who's a minister, he brings it on home. It's like an altar call. And basically, what the world sees is they see Dr. King. I mean, like in in their own words, they were like, you can see people crying in the room. Well, once Atlanta wins the bid for the Olympic Games, the first thing that's built on time and under budget is a thousand bed jail to house the homeless. Years before you have the creation of the Red Dog Police. You know, um, you have had the Atlanta child murders that are taking place and people have forgotten about it. But that generation is now coming of age. Um, You also have a, a generation of young people that are kind of stepping out there who are in high school. Whose parents had kind of come of age when, when Maynard Jackson was married first time. So their parents' generation saw Maynard as this Maynard Jackson as a sacred cow, whereas my generation was like, well, what have they really done for us though? And so you have the the, the first metrics for the war on drugs and the criminalization and the red dogs, and The reason I started out this conversation saying that I'm the biggest outcast and goody mob fan in the world is because when I at the end of the book, what I'm able to do is I'm able to set up the political movements that create all of these different things that outcast and goody mob discuss. So what they do is they critique the Olympification of Atlanta. But the thing is, is they're not able to do it without Maynard Jackson's creation of the Bureau of Cultural Affairs, which produces the Atlanta Jazz Festival, but also puts money into community coffers so that artists could produce art and so like the the thing about it is Maynard Jackson's first wife Buddy Jackson Ransom is instrumental in bringing you know uh the SOS band to the forefront uh, bringing um cameo to atlanta she works with brick the the soul the soul band uh brick soul and funk band brick i mean bohan and she's interacted with all these different people and if you talk to Rico Wade, uh, Ray Murray and Sleepy Brown, who are the architects of Organized Noise, who is the production team for OutKast and Goody Mob and all kinds of other folk, they would say to you that their sound comes from that soul and funk that comes out of the 70s that was brought on by Johnny Bunny Jackson Ransom and enhanced by Maynard Jackson's Bureau of Cultural Affairs and then a critique of the Olympics. And so, and see, that's, that's stuff that, that when you're able to interview the artist I See, I'm able to get that kind of information from them. And then when you look at the lyrics, you're able to see what the issues are. So you see them talking about the Red Dog Police. You see them talking about the Atlanta child murders. You see them talking about the, the building of the thousand bed jail, putting walls up on the side of the interstate. You see them, you know, talking about, you know, um, drug traffic and the, the Haitian Zopound and Jamaican posses and the Atlanta hustlers and the, the street wars. You see all of that kind of play out in the music. And all of them reference saying, but all y'all trying to do is get this city ready for the Olympics. But what about us that's already here? You see the relaxation of laws for all kinds of strip clubs and all kinds of different things. You see how the policing of the city in terms of freaknik because they didn't want black kids in town, because they didn't want them to tear up all of the progress made for the Olympics. You see all of that stuff. And that's what I'm able to do. That's why I was saying to you, I'm the biggest outcast and Goody my fan, is because. I'm able to take what I heard and actually do a political history on what's the context of it and then bring it back full circle. Not a lot of people can do that. A lot of people can enjoy something, but they can't make it make a whole lot of sense in a lot of ways. And I've had the yeah, I've had the time to do it.
1: <laughs> and, and I was going to say, um, what would, what's the experience like of being able to uh, uh, interview um, uh, Outkast, Goody Mob and these different. Um, Atlanta figures what what are they like as as, as folks on uh as as interviewees right because I'm sure like that that's it that you that's it that's a key 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 the oral history component is a very key uh component uh, of your of, of your uh methodology here
2: well the the thing about it is uh first and foremost you got to show yourself as a professional and what I mean by professional I'm not saying like you know you got to be suited and booted but you know, it, it has to be clear that they understand that you are. Um, you're there to do a job, but you're not a journalist. And so one of the ways in which I was always able to kind of shock and awe artist was that they were like, man, this guy has a real comprehensive history of Atlanta. So I'm teaching them things like. Um, in the book, there's a conversation around the players ball. And I talk about the number on a Wesley Merritt. Well. Organized noise, outcasts are good about. They didn't know anything about Wesley Merritt. They had just heard of the player's ball just in passing while they were growing up. Well, I'm actually able to teach them about that because of the interviews I had done with some of Wesley Merritt's lieutenants. And that's when they're just kind of like, okay, this is a whole different style. This dude is a whole different kind of person when it comes to that. Um, the interviews that I was able to do in trap houses, like to kind of understand how crack cocaine was really filtered into the city, particularly in the 80s and 90s. So I'm not talking about what's going on now. I'm talking about what was going on in the 80s and 90s. And to be able to go into a place and someone know that I'm not a cop to get this story and to keep all of that stuff, you know, under lock and key, you know, keep, you know I, I keep a lot of identities, you know, uh, anonymous because that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, um, so that's the thing about it is to be able to show people like that you actually are serious about what you're doing. And so it's cool to be able to, to interview those guys. I mean, you know, Rico Wade and I uh, are, are really cool, you know, interviewed Sleepy and, and Ray Murray several times. Um, there's a possibility that we're going to work on something a little bit later. Um, just interacting with them, is, it's, a, it's a cool piece, but it's always professional. And what I'm saying is uh, these guys are like my age or older. And so with that being said, like we're not trying to hang out in a club and entourage and be best friends you know, much respect when we see each other, you know, it's always, you know, love and then you kind of keep it moving. Um, and that's where I've been. I mean, like, you know, I, I enjoy the time I've been able to interact with them, but then I also enjoy the fact that I'm able to kind of keep my distance to where they they respect how I'm rolling and I respect how they roll.
1: So, And, and that, Hey, and I, and that's, and that definitely is a interesting thing too, is, um, that you're, you know keeping that keeping that professional distance um as well and and then also like you mentioned before you know y'all are y'all are you know a- among the same generation as well um and so um in the last couple minutes that we have you oh, man time is flying um in the last uh, couple minutes we have you um you know you had you had mentioned uh, offline and briefly throughout the interview about some of the uh, uh some of the other projects that you have working um uh do you mind speaking about uh uh Uh, one or two of them if, if possible.
2: Oh yeah. 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 Well, you know, I could, I could tell you what, I I could tell you what I can tell you. Um, so, so, um, of course I was blessed and fortunate enough to be, uh, chosen by Maynard Jackson's family to serve as the chief historian for the documentary Maynard, uh, which is now on Netflix. And, uh, to really kind of give a contextualizing voice to a lot of different things. Um, I uh, served as a chief historian for a new documentary with uh, David McMahon and um, and Sarah uh, Burns. This is Ken Burns' his daughter. The documentary and Ken Burns' his daughter on the demolition of Atlanta public housing, particularly East Lake Meadows. Like, given the context of that, uh, most recently, I served as a chief historian for a new documentary on Michael Vick in Atlanta to give the context on when Michael Vick is selected by the Atlanta Falcons and, you know, the whole kind of play out of, of all kinds of different things, um, served as chief historian on, um, on a woman, an artist by the name of Nellie May Rowe. Uh, most recently, um, I was brought in as a, uh, or, or contracted as an executive producer and chief historian for a new documentary, uh, with Jay-Z with Jay-Z's group. And so I'll, I'll leave that at that. Um, but I've I've had the distinct pleasure of uh, you know doing interviews for the city of Atlanta in terms of you know organized noise particular artists. We um, I, I do a lot of public history in the city, um, serving as a consultant historically for the city in terms of some different things. Most recently, uh, I interviewed the five Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, recipients that are all from Atlanta: C.T. Vivian, uh, Andrew Young, John Lewis uh, Joseph Lowry and Hank Aaron. Um, so, you know, uh, things are good. The book has won awards. And so, you know, I'm tenured. And so, man, I'm just in a good place. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great place to be. And I look forward to so much, so many more things that I have going. So.
1: And, and I, oh my gosh, as someone, I said in the time that he was, uh, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, I said, like you said, for, for a good about, I was the biggest Mike Vick fan, you know. I I remember those years fondly. Um, so it's definitely great to hear of uh, of a documentary um, in, in the in the works about um, about Michael Vick and the city of Atlanta. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it's
2: ESPN ESPN thirty for thirty. It's going oh, to be a good one.
1: Oh woo, wow! Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, the exciting times, and uh, it's the end of the semester. So I hope that you. Uh, are able to get at least some sleep with all the different projects and such yeah. <laughs> involved in it. Uh, but um, you know what, Dr. Hobson, I really appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. Um, the time has just gone by so quickly, and um, I'm very much appreciative for you taking the time out because I'm sure you know the, the, the listeners are going to go get your amazing book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. Uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, you are, yeah, because I was going to say, I actually, you, you did a, you were on a panel at Southern historical about, um, yeah, uh, I, I, property,
2: saw, I, right? I thought I saw you. So, so i you know, I, 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 used to live in Birmingham and so I had some other things going, but we were at the event with Lonnie Bunch. We had brought Lonnie Bunch in, the, in there. Yeah. And so I thought I saw you in the back yeah. because I remember meeting you on the elevator. Yes. Uh, at a so okay, okay, okay. So yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah. I did do a presentation there uh, with some folk. Yeah, that was that was you know just something for a little bit of fun, but yeah, it was well attended. Uh, I got a lot of emails about that presentation. So
1: oh, oh, oh yeah, man. Yeah. as someone who's uh, 26, I I learned, I heard stories from 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 some of my uh, older colleagues who told me about that, and so I can yeah, I just keep it. Yeah, I just say that I'm. A great time, shall we say? I'm sure for for, for y'all that were able to attend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well,
2: and the piece on, uh, and, and that's one of the things too. Is I need to say this. One of the reasons I'm able to kind of bring something to the fore is that uh, I attended Freaknik '93, '94, '95, '96. I I mean, I was there. Um, and on some levels, it was a good time, and on some levels, it was a very dangerous time. And I mean, and we knew that then, and so. You know, sometimes people get out here and want to tell these jokes and like laugh and ha-ha about Freaknik, but it was a it it. There were sides to it, and for those that went there and they said it was a good time, like it was a good time, but it it was one of those times where you got to pay attention to what you were doing too, because you could easily get robbed. I mean, like it was that was the big thing about it, is getting robbed and all kind of different things. So so yeah,
1: there it is, there it is. Well. Dr. Hobson, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. And once again, folks, we have had the phenomenal opportunity to, to talk to Dr. Mer, uh, Dr. Maurice J. Hobson from, uh, from Georgia State, who we had on today with his phenomenal book published by our friends at UNC Press in 2017, entitled The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. I am your host, Adam McNeil, from New Books in African American Studies. Until next time, folks, over and out.